Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we place our bodies before you as living sacrifices. We give you, Lord, our minds, the best of our devotion tonight. We open our hearts, we fix our thoughts upon you, the living and true God. And Father, we want to learn because we want to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we get reacquainted, Lord, with the message of this prophet, Hosea, and as we read the principles that you spoke through this man to the nation of Israel, we pray that your Spirit would speak to our own hearts, that we might grow to be more like you and be yielded instruments to do your will. We want to discover your plan for our lives and have the sheer joy of living in that will. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've seen USA Today newspaper, and you know that so often on the front, they'll have a little graph, be it a pie chart or statistics, about some trend going on in America. Well, a while back, they did a little graph asking Americans the top four things they feel most guilty about. 34% say they don't feel guilty about anything in particular. I thought that was pretty interesting. They don't feel guilty at all for no reason. 15% said they feel guilty because they spend too much money. 12% said they feel guilty because they're not taking care of their health like they should. Another 12% said they feel guilty that they don't spend enough time with friends and family. But the majority, as I said, they don't feel guilty about anything. And I bring that out because the nation of Israel, and in particular those ten northern tribes that we have been speaking about, they were guilty before God, but they didn't feel guilty about anything in particular. So, God is now going to show them what they should feel guilty about. And the next couple of chapters is that courtroom scene. The court is in session. God is the judge. The nation of Israel is on the stand. And Hosea is the prosecuting attorney. And in the next couple of chapters, God is going to list several charges against his people. It's as if the prophet Hosea will bring in Exhibit A, Exhibit B, Exhibit C, showing evidence before the judge of what the nation has done. Now, I'll just reaffirm a little bit of background just to catch us all up. Hosea the prophet ministered for about 50 years, from 760 B.C. to around 710 during the period of a whole host of kings, they, they came and went, but this guy was steady Eddie, giving God's message to God's people. During that time, 
the Lord used a personal tragedy in Hosea's life so that Hosea would feel what God felt when it comes to his own people, the nation of Israel. And so Hosea was instructed to marry a hooker, a prostitute. Gomer was her name. Gomer the go-go girl from Israel. And God even said, you're going to marry her. I want you to show faithful love to her. But she's going to go out on you and she'll squander all of your money. Because, Hosea, that's what Israel, my people, have done to me. So in the first few chapters, we've seen Hosea's personal situation. A faithful husband and an adulterous wife. And then we saw how the story shifted from God's point of view. A faithful Lord and an adulterous nation. And so these two situations parallel each other. So that Hosea had the unique opportunity to have fellowship with God that not everybody is privy to. It's called the fellowship of his sufferings. Uh, Something that probably most of us here would say, I don't think I want a part of that. But it was Paul who said, oh, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable even unto his death. You know, a lot of us would love to put the period right after resurrection in that verse. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, period. But Paul said, I want a deeper kind of fellowship. I want a fellowship that I could suffer in such a way that I would know what it's like when God suffers. Hosea was in that special club, you might say. He understood what God felt like because of his own wife in this own situation. Well, in chapter 7, you're going to see, and we're going to read together, four depictions Four idioms, four analogies of Israel and their relationship with God. The first one, they're like a heated oven. An oven all heated up but never cools down. And you'll see why God uses that as an illustration. Second, they're like an unbaked muffin. They're half-baked. They're not turned all the way. It doesn't go all the way through. They're not consistent. They're not balanced. That's the second illustration that God will use. Third, they're like a silly bird, a dove. Doves, if you know much about them, aren't the brightest birds. They're bird brains. And God will use the silly dove as an illustration. And finally, a bow. He calls it a, a treacherous or an unreliable or a warped bow that you can't rely on. Now, you're going to notice something right off the bat in chapter 7. It's as if God was saying, I would have healed you. I would have stepped in to answer the prayer of chapter 6 when you said, come let us return to the Lord. And I would have answered that and completely healed the nation. But every time I tried, it's as if you piled up sin upon sin upon sin. And there really wasn't any change. So notice with me. When I would have healed Israel, 
Then the iniquity of Ephraim was uncovered, and the wickedness of Samaria. For they have committed fraud or deceit. The thief comes in, a band of robbers takes spoil outside. Okay, let me throw in a little other piece of background, just in case you may have forgotten. Here in this book, when he mentions Israel, it's not the entire nation. Remember the nation has been divided. It's been split since Rehoboam's days and Jeroboam's days. So you'll find these synonyms are used. Sometimes God will call the ten northern tribes Israel, because that's the bulk of his people. The two southern tribes, Judah, that includes Judah and Benjamin. Sometimes he'll refer to the north not as Israel, but as Ephraim because that was the largest tribe, so that one tribe is representative of the ten tribes of Israel. So you have that language sort of used interchangeably here. Notice it says, The thief comes in, and a band of robbers takes spoil outside. Now a thief works inside the house. And the band of robbers, they work outside the house. And here's God's point. You are wicked in and out. All the way through, inside and out, as I look at you, it's like a house that's taken over by bandits. Wickedness instead of righteousness. You see, the entire political slash moral fabric of the nation had deteriorated. Inside and outside, politically, spiritually, morally, they had become corrupt. In Psalm 11, the psalmist asks a probing question. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? When the foundations of a country, a nation, a democracy, or in this case a theocracy, when you spoil the foundations and they lose integrity so that there's no moral absolute and the laws keep changing and favor the criminals rather than the just. What are the righteous going to do? One translation says, when the bottom drops out of the country, what will the nation do? What will the godly do? Your money says in God we trust on it. But we live in a country that more and more is pushing God out of national life. No reminders. And you're already witnessing the courtroom decisions, the trials, um, the people fighting any kind of representation of God at all. The foundations have been corrupted. And inside and out, God looks at this country and sees no righteousness. They do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Not just outward, but inward. Now their own deeds have surrounded them. They are before my face. And in Hebrew, this speaks of being very close to my face. You might say, you're in my face with all of your sin. You do it right here. You're unashamed. Verse 3, they make a king glad with their wickedness and princes with their lies. It's not that this country was just tolerating sin. They were celebrating sin. 
Do you remember back in Isaiah chapter 5 before... In chapter 6, he gets that great vision of seeing the Lord. Back in chapter 5, there's a whole list of indictments that God brings the nation, very similar to this. And in Isaiah 5, the Lord says, Woe unto those who draw or drag iniquity with cords of vanity. And pull sin like it were a, a cart being pulled by a rope. In other words, when the nation reaches a point to where not only do they tolerate sin, but they celebrate, oh, aren't we tolerant? We'll just accept anything and we'll do anything and whatever you do is acceptable. So much so, we'll publicly celebrate it and drag it out in the open, not only before God's face, but publicly. God notices when a nation reaches that point and Israel had reached that point. So God saw it all. But his point is, not only do I see when you drag it out publicly, I see what's going on on the inside. The ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, the Bible tells us. You see, you can't hide a secret from God. Lewis Berry Schaefer, the great theologian from Dallas Seminary, used to say, secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. God says, I see it all. They are all adulterers. Like an oven heated by a baker. That's the first analogy. A heated up oven. Like an oven heated by a baker. He ceases stirring the fire after kneading the dough until it is leavened. In the day of our king, princes have made him sick, inflamed with wine. He stretches out his hand with scoffers. They prepare their heart like an oven. While they lay in wait, the baker sleeps all night. In the morning it burns like a flaming fire. They are all hot like an oven, and they have devoured their judges. All their kings have fallen. There is none among them who calls upon me. Now in those days, and by the way, in these days, if you go to the Middle East, and I remember going through Iraq on the way to Baghdad and stopping off and watch people bake bread. What the baker does is in the evening, he lights the fire in the oven. Then he kneads the dough. And overnight, while he's sleeping, the dough rises. By morning time, the oven has gotten hot enough to throw that bread on the side of the oven and let it bake. After he's done working, the oven's been heated up all night long, And then he bakes the bread in the morning. Once the bread is baked, the fire cools down. It's over. Nothing more to cook. But God says, you guys are like an oven that never turns off. And the the idea that he's making, the point that he's making is that you are inflamed with desires, with lust. You are burning and the burning continues and has never stopped. The baker knows when it's done, turns his oven off. But you guys are continually, continually heated up in your lust, in your sinful desires apart from me. Now, look at that last little section, verse 7. All their kings have fallen. There is none among them who calls upon me. You may recall that the kings of Judah, some of them were good, some of them were bad. The kings of Israel in the north, 
All of them were bad. At least in Judah, there were reprieves. Every now and then, they'd have some revival. One of the kings would get uh, notice that they found a scroll. They bring out the scroll. It happens to be a copy of the Bible. They read the Bible. They all get convicted. They all turn to God, and a renewal starts. Or when the Assyrians came against King Hezekiah, Hezekiah spread that letter before the Lord, brought in the prophet Isaiah, and because of the heart of the king turned toward God, God took the judgment away. So at least with Judah, every now and then you had spurts of renewal, episodes of revival, but not up north. Up north, 19 kings in a row were wicked. And it ended with the last one, 722 B.C., when the Assyrians finally captured Hosea, the final king of Israel. So about 200 straight years of evil and wickedness, one upon the other. So all their kings have fallen. There is none among them who calls upon me. Ephraim, verse 8, has mixed himself among the peoples. Aliens have devoured his strength. Now, don't think Roswell aliens. Think foreigners, outsiders have come in and taken his wealth. But he does not know it. Yes, gray hairs are here and there on him, yet he does not know it. Never looked in the mirror. And the pride of Israel testifies to his face, but they do not return to the Lord their God nor seek him for all of this. So verse 8, Ephraim has mixed himself among the peoples. Ephraim is a cake unturned. We just talked about how they bake bread in the ovens, and usually the ovens are curved on the inside, and they throw the dough up on them, and they rise while it sticks to the oven. Or if they bake them outside, it's on sort of a flat but slightly rounded stone. But you've got to turn it. Because if you don't turn it, and especially if the heat is too severe, you'll burn the bottom, but the top will be gooey. Now, I love to make pancakes and waffles. But they've got to be done just right. And I've made the mistake of having the griddle turned up too high, and I pour the mixture in, and it starts burning the bottom of it, but the top is gooey, and so you've got to turn it real quick, and, and it's half-baked. And so I always want to present it with the good side up. And the bottom side looks really bad, but there's one side that looks presentable. And my wife and my son will go, oh, those are great-looking waffles. Great. Well, just put butter on them then and pour them, laden them with syrup and eat it. Don't turn them. This is an inconsistent life. Hard on one side, gooey on the other. Not balanced. Ephraim is half-baked, God would say. Not consistent in the way it was approached in that um, cooking episode. Aliens have devoured his strength. He does not know it. Gray hairs are here and there on him, and he does not know it. I like mirrors, and yet I hate them. I like them because then I can do something about what I see. I don't like them because of what I see. I know i got to do something about what I see, so I'll comb the hair and wash the face, 
shave the mug. But it's also very revealing, and especially if you have a good light above the mirror. And I don't even need mirrors. I've got friends who say, boy, you're getting a lot of gray hair on the sides of your temples. (laughs) Honest, loving souls they are. (laughs) What does this metaphor mean? It simply means this. You're losing your strength, you're losing your vitality, you're passing your prime, but you don't even realize it. And by the time you realize it, you won't be able to do something about it because once the invaders come in, you will have so lost your strength and expended it elsewhere that you won't have time to react with any kind of strength at all. That's the idea of you're losing your vitality. There's gray hairs here and there, but you don't know it. You remember Samson, don't you? You remember he's illustrated in a few chapters of the book of Judges. There's uh, one of the most famous stories of Samson's life in Judges chapter 16. He's flirting with Delilah. Delilah was obviously a very good-looking chick. Because Samson was so drawn to her, but he lost his common sense. He became stupid. I'll I'll illustrate. She was hired by the Philistines to find out the secret of his great untamable strength. And so she asked him, Samson, would you please tell me the secret of your strength? (laughs) Now, if he were smart, he'd say, go away. Forget it. I'm not going to tell you the secret of my strength. But he he enjoyed the affection, enjoyed the attention. And he said, well, Delilah, baby, (laughs) if you bind me with seven bowstrings, I will be weak like any other man. So she lulled him to sleep. Well, honey, just just put your head down right here and, and just relax. So he went to sleep. And she did it. She bound him with seven bowstrings. And then... The lords of the Philistines were in the next room. Just to give them a little bit of warning, she said, Samson, wake up! The Philistines are upon you. And they were coming in, and just then he snapped those bowstrings like they were pieces of thread ignited by a flame and worked the Philistines over. So he was safe until Delilah came again, and she said, You don't love me, Samson. Because if you loved me, you would have told me the truth. You lied to me. Tell me, what is the secret of your great strength? Well, he said, if you were to bind me with seven green new ropes, new cords, that's the secret. I would be weak like any other man. Oh, honey, I love you so much. Thank you for being honest with me. Now, just put your head down here and go to sleep. (laughs) Idiot. Thinking she found the secret of his strength, she did it. Then she woke him up. Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He snapped them like they were nothing, beat up the Philistines. And then she said, Samson, you don't love... Now, wait a minute. I'd say, wait a minute. I don't love you? You're trying to get me killed here. I don't think you love me. But he kept playing with it. Well, if you take the locks of my hair and put them into seven segments, seven uh, woven locks, I'll be like any other man. And it didn't work until finally he gave away his strength and his hair was shorn. 
He had a vow with God, a Nazarite vow. That was the secret of his strength, not his long hair. It was a commitment, a covenant with God. The Bible says something very interesting, and it goes in line with what we're reading. When she woke him up after the episode of cutting his hair and said, The Philistines are upon you. Samson Samson said to himself, I'll go out as before. I'll get up and do what I've done just like before. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. God departed from him. He didn't know it. He was unaware of it. He's saying, I know your condition, Ephraim. I know your condition, ten northern tribes of Israel. The problem is, you don't know your condition. You're hurting for certain, but you're not aware of it. And so I'm making you aware of it. It is possible to moderate, to change, to go away from that steady commitment with the Lord over time. And because it's slowly done over time, you don't realize those incremental changes are adding up to a major shift. You're unaware. The people of God were unaware. God is making them aware through this process. Verse 11, here's a third idiom. Ephraim is also like a silly dove. Without sense, they call to Egypt, they go to Assyria. Wherever they go, I will spread my net on them. I will bring them down like the birds of the air. I will chastise them according to what their congregation has heard. There's an old Eastern proverb that says, Nothing is as simple as a dove. Simple in the biblical sense. Simple in the sense of uninitiated, unaware, dumb. Remember Jesus said to his disciples, Be wise as serpents and harmless as Doves. Doves are harmless. But he didn't say be wise as doves because doves are not wise. They're pretty dumb. They're silly. They flit about. They get confused easily. And get this. They will allow predators to get close to their nests so that their young are jeopardized. The whole future of these babies, because they'll allow a strange being close to the nest... They're placing their young in danger. It's silly. It's dumb. So the Lord says, you're like a silly dove. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. Doves get confused when there's lots of activity going around. Their heads will go one direction, the other direction. If there's a lot of voices, they're they're undiscerning as to what is dangerous and what is not. And so they will not know who or what to trust in those kind of situations. Now that's Israel. They're looking to Egypt. They're looking to Assyria. What God is speaking about is that instead of trusting Him to be God's unique people, they went to Egypt and they said, Hey, let's make a pact. We'll come together with you guys. Hey, Assyria, we'll make a pact together. They made foreign alliances so that their country, they thought, would be secure from outside predators. But they didn't realize that Assyria, the ones they're actually making a pact with, will be the ones that will attack them. Silly, like a dove. Confused because of the voices. And Assyria will be the one to take them captive. Woe to them, verse 13, 
For they have fled from me. Now that is silly. First of all, it's silly if you ever think you can run from God. One of the most amazing scriptures I've read in all the Bible, it says, And Jonah went down to Tarshish to flee from the presence of the Lord. That's dumb. Especially for a prophet. A prophet ought to know you can't ever get away from God. A prophet should read Psalm 139. Where can I flee from your presence? If I make my bed in hell, even there I'll find you. That was silly. Woe to them. They have fled from me. Destruction to them because they have transgressed against me. Though I redeem them, Yet they have spoken lies against me. They did not cry out to me with their heart when they wailed upon their beds. Oh yeah, they cried out. Oh, they wailed. Oh, they moaned because of the problems that were coming upon them. The Assyrians. The threats. But though they cried, it wasn't a heartfelt cry of grief over their sin. Remember what Jesus said? Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. He didn't say, blessed are those who moan. And some people confuse moaning with mourning. Oh, this is horrible. Oh, this is horrible. Okay, but now turn that into a cry to God of sincere devotion, sincere repentance if need be. A complete turning not away from him, but toward him. They did not cry out to me with their heart. Paul the Apostle wrote a letter to a church in Corinth, and it was a stern letter of rebuke, and it made some of them very upset in his follow-up letter, 2 Corinthians. He said, I know that I wrote you a severe letter, and I'm glad. I'm glad not because my letter made you sorry, But I'm glad because it was a sorrow that produced repentance. It was a godly sorrow that produced repentance. They, the people of Israel, had sorrow, but it was not a godly sorrow, and it certainly did not evidence itself in repentance. Change. I had a friend of mine one time who said, You know, Skip, I look at repentance like brushing your teeth. I said, okay, please explain that to me. He said, well, even as Christians, there are things that God will call upon us to change when we uncover the truth. And he said, you know what it's like when you haven't brushed your teeth for a few days? I go, no. (laughs) But obviously you do, so tell me about it. He goes, well, now since then I do know. I forgot my toothbrush last time I went to North Carolina. And the first night, oh man, I couldn't wait till the next day to go out and get a toothbrush. It's sort of hard with your finger doing this. But he said, when, I, when the Lord shows me something and I bring it up to him and say, Oh Lord, I want to get rid of that filth, that scum in my life. I repent. He says, it's like a spiritual toothbrush. <sighs> Feels so good. There was no change. There was no repentance. Now I remember Lenya tells a story about the first time she heard the word repentance. 
She had read a little tract that says, if you want to get right with God, you have to ask Jesus on the throne of your heart. And when you do that, all of the things in life will just go the way they ought to. You'll have everything you need, everything you want. So she did that. And for the first few weeks, she sat in church and she thought, something right. Something isn't right. So after the church service, she went to the back room, the prayer room with one of the pastors. And she said, you know, I prayed this prayer. I've asked Jesus to sit on the throne of my heart, of my life. And yet, I feel like something's missing. And this particular pastor was from England. His name was Malcolm Wilde. And he turned to Lenny and said, Have you repented of your sins? And she said, What? Have you repented of your sins? And she said, Have I re-what? What does that mean? And he explained repentance, what it means to acknowledge, to have a change of mind, a change of heart, and a change of direction. She said, I haven't done that. And he said, Well, that's what's wrong. And explained it to her Coming to Christ isn't just accepting Christ. It's turning from the past, turning from sin, what God shows you to be wrong, and then following Him in obedience. And that was a threshold moment in her life, and that's the moment that Israel lacked as a nation. God brings that up. They assemble together for grain and new wine. They're getting together all the formal functions of Israel. They rebel against me. Though I discipline them and strengthen their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not to the Most High. They are like a deceitful bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword, their cursings of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. This deceitful bow is a, is a warped instrument, a warped bow. And a warped bow will always shoot out an uncertain arrow. It's unreliable. And by the way, in those days, you know what they did with warped bows? You couldn't repair them. You'd throw them away. There has to be something brand new that's accurate and straight. You see, Jesus didn't say, you need to embark on a self-improvement plan. What he said to Nicodemus is, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. You can't reform the old nature. You're to crucify the old man. You're to put on the new man, the new nature. And so it takes a new birth with God's new power. This is a deceitful bow. Bent, warped. By the way, that is the condition of all of mankind. We're all born with a bend toward evil. That's why we all need redemption. Isaiah put it this way. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord laid on Him, that is Messiah, the iniquities of us all. Paul put it this way. By one man sin entered the world and death through sin, so that death spread to all because all have sinned. That's the problem. That's the bend in the character, the bend in the nature. We're born warped. We're born with the need to be born again. And you've heard that little saying, if you're born only once, you'll die twice. If you're born twice, you'll only die once. 
You're a warped, bent bow, deceitful bow, unreliable bow that needs a change from the inside out. They return, but not to me. They're like a deceitful bow. It's a great story about Leonardo da Vinci, and not the da Vinci Code, but the the artist who painted some of the most famous works, probably as most famous as The Last Supper. This is the most celebrated. It took da Vinci years to paint The Last Supper. He started by wanting to find somebody that would be a model for him to be the Jesus in the portrait. He wanted somebody that was noble, had a godly, shiny kind of a countenance. And finally, in looking all over, he found a a choir boy in a local choir. Magnificent model. And his name was Pietro Bandellini. And he sat this young man down and he painted Christ using Pietro Bandellini as the model. He thanked him. He continued his painting for month after month and year after year. And he got all of the disciples done. And he was saving Judas for the last. Well, now he wanted another model. One that had a treacherous face. A scary looking mug. And he looked all around the city till he found a beggar on the streets. Horrible to look at. But he said, I'll pay you well if you'll come and model for a painting I'm doing. Told him what he would be in the painting, Judas. And this homeless man agreed. Brought him in, painted him. Da Vinci paid the young man. And the man stopped and he said, You don't recognize me, do you? He said, No, who are you? He says, I am Pietro Bandellini. I was the model for you years ago when you painted me as Jesus. What a change. From choir boy to street criminal. From someone with the face of an angel to now someone with a treacherous face. The nation of Israel had the ultimate position chosen by God, kept by God the inheritance of the Lord, all of the promises of the future. And they became this, half-baked, a silly dove, a hot, lustful oven that couldn't turn down, and a bow that was unreliable. Those are the indictments. And we have 15 minutes. I bet we could keep going through chapter 8, don't you think? Set the trumpet to your mouth. I almost brought a trumpet tonight. It's a little shofar. It's a ram's horn. And the shofar was blown principally during this era of Israel to sound the alarm of an approaching army. But listen to this. Set the trumpet to your mouth. He shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord, he being the enemy, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Israel will cry to me, My God, we know you. Israel has cast off the good the enemy will pursue him. So here the judge is passing the sentence. The sentence is, you're going to be invaded by Assyria. They're going to come in. Set the trumpet to your mouth. Usually it was a trumpet to warn them, get ready, the enemy's coming. Here, this is simply, blow the trumpet, it's too late. Here they come, you're not going to have the strength to deal with it. 
because they have transgressed my covenant. Now, the prophet Hosea, I want you to notice in this chapter, delivers five counts, five counts of their own guilty wickedness. First count, you've broken the covenant, the covenant of the law, the covenant that makes you a unique, special people. You've broken it. You've rebelled against my law. Israel will cry to me, my God, we know you. Israel has been cast or has cast off the good. The enemy will pursue him. Here's the problem. The very people who had the covenant of the law of Moses decided, you know, we don't want to live by that law anymore. We've got our own new laws, our new values. In the book of Judges, the very last chapter, the last verse, it puts it this way. There was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Complete, total anarchy. They pushed God away. They had no human leader that was speaking for God to them. There was no theocratic kingdom. Now... They make up their own laws. They make up their own rules. And at the same time, they say, Oh, God, we know God. God and I were just like this. It was all outward profession, all outward confession, no inward possession. It's very much equivalent to the New Testament. Jesus said, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not done this and done that? And the Lord said, I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Did you notice... Back in verse 1, he shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord. That speaks of swiftness. If you've ever watched the National Geographic channel, when they show the special on the eagle hunting its prey, not only does it have good eyesight, it's fast. And it can take its prey quickly off guard, but there's more. The favorite bird of the Assyrians, in fact, the likeness of Assyria was depicted as an eagle. Here God is predicting to Israel the very nation that will take them captive, the Assyrians. They were represented as an ancient giant eagle. Again, verse 3, Israel has cast off the good. Now, Jerome, when he translated his Bible and took this verse, he wrote, Israel has cast off the God who is good. He saw that this was the best literal rendition of the Hebrew construct of this verse. They've decided to push God out of national life. God who had been so good to them, they didn't want to pursue any longer. Verse 4. Here's the second count of wickedness. They set up kings, but not by me. In other words, they've chosen ungodly leaders. They made princes, and I did not acknowledge it. From their silver and their gold they made for themselves idols that they might be cut off. It was never in God's heart to divide the kingdom. God never wanted a division in the kingdom. God never acknowledged Jeroboam and his rebellion. You remember the story. Solomon died, Rehoboam his son sits on the throne. The people are a bit miffed because Solomon had so taxed them and mistreated them that eventually Jeroboam, not of royal blood, not of the progeny of Solomon, 
comes as the spokesperson to the king. He says, King, you know, we all have a problem with you. We have a problem with the way you've overtaxed the people. And indeed, Solomon was rough. And Rehoboam gave the wrong answer. It's like of all the things not to say, he did it. He basically said after listening to the young men rather than the older, wiser men, he said, listen, let me tell you something. You think my dad treated you rough? Wait till you watch me. My little finger will be thicker than my father's waist. He might have beat you with whips. I will beat you up and scourge you with scorpions. That's not the nicest, best way to approach the problem. It was so bad that there was friction between Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And the ten northern tribes said, To your tents, O Israel. And a division occurred then, and Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, became the king of the ten northern tribes. Immediately he set up idolatry. He set up calves. You see, Jeroboam had been in Egypt. He noticed that in Egypt they worshipped Apis, the bull, Maneva, the ox. And he combined these two figures and set up two golden calves, one in the middle of the country and way up north. He even brought in his own priesthood, his own worship service, his own worship center. Now they're not in Jerusalem. It's not a legitimate priesthood, and he's not even a legitimate king. So that's what God means when he says, with your idols, you've set up kings. I don't even recognize them. Not by me. They made princes, second part of verse 4, and I did not acknowledge it from their silver and gold. They made idols for themselves. Okay, just know this. It went from bad to worse, to captivity. And as I said, in the northern kingdom, none of those 19 kings were any good. And it's like there was a dad and then a son, and the son out batted dad. They got worse than dad was. It just was this downward progression of wickedness. For instance, it was King Omri who made Samaria the capital because he didn't want the people to go down to Jerusalem, so he made Samaria the capital, set up a calf in Samaria. His son was Ahab, who was worse than his dad. He looked at dad's sin and dad's hypocrisy, but he himself became worse. He married a gal from Sidonia up north, Jezebel, and she was the worst thing for him and for the nation. But it started a lot of the wickedness with what a child saw in his father in terms of hypocrisy. Let me tell you a story. Years ago, there was a Jewish boy raised in a Jewish family in Germany. He loved his father. And his father made sure that family life revolved around the synagogue worship. Until, unexpectedly, he lost his job and they were forced to move to a new city. There were no synagogues in that new city. And because the most important businessmen in that city were all Lutherans, his dad came home and said, we're no longer Jewish, we're all Lutherans, because, hey, if you want to make a buck in this town, you've got to be a Lutheran. His son looked at that and said, well, Dad, 
If we should become Lutheran, it's because we believe it's the truth. Oh, no, I don't believe it's the truth. I just want to make a profit in this town. That stung this young man's heart. He didn't care much for religion at that point because of what he saw with his dad. And that young boy went away to England and studied economics and started placing his thoughts on paper. In fact, he wrote, Religion is the opiate of the masses. The young boy was Karl Marx. And the world has seen the negative influence of Marxism, really the influence of a father's hypocrisy, where a son just said, it's all wrong, it's all crazy, forget it all. And so many in this world have been influenced by a system that began in the heart of a young man who saw the hypocrisy of a father. Father passed it to son, as happened in the 19 kings in the northern kingdom of Israel. So, it's a good lesson for dads to walk before the Lord in honesty and openness, realizing you're walking before your son or daughter, and they're watching. Third charge God brings against them, idolatry. We already saw some of it in verse 4. Look at verse 5. Your calf is rejected, O Samaria. My anger is roused against them. How long will it be until they attain to innocence? For from Israel is even this, a workman made it, and it is not God. But the calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces." Do you remember that psalm where David sort of lists what idols have, but they can't do with them? He says, the idols of the heathen are vain. Mouths they have, but they cannot speak. Ears they have, but they cannot hear. Eyes they have, but they cannot see. And everyone who worships them, David said, will become like unto them. You become like the God you worship. Boy, it's awfully frustrating to have a God that has a mouth on it, carved onto it, but it can't talk to you. How will you ever know the will of that God if that God cannot communicate to you the will of his heart and give you some revelation of himself and what to do? You're aimless. It has a mouth, but it can't talk. Or it has eyes, but it can't see. Well, why worship a God that can't see? Now you have to take care of it because it can't see you. You can pray to it, please watch over me. Oh, wait a minute. You can't watch anything you can't see. Remember that crazy story when Jacob left Laban and took Rachel, his wife, and Rachel stole her father's gods and put them in the sacks of the donkey? And Laban got all mad and chased after. And I love the scene. It's hilarious. He goes, you stole my gods. Okay, newsflash, if you can steal somebody's gods, they're worthless. If that god can't take care of you and you have to take care, you stole my gods. How lame is that? David also said they have ears, but they can't hear. That's awfully frustrating, especially when you go to pray. And you look at that image and you say, okay, I'm asking for your protection. It can't hear you. can't see you. Can't hear you, can't talk to you. And yet, 
Israel, from Israel, God says, even this, you cast these idols. But they're insensate. They're powerless. And you're going to become just like them. No wonder then Elijah on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18 mocked the pagan worshipers. Remember, they were cutting themselves and jumping up and down. And, oh, Baal, hear us. Oh, Baal, hear us. And so Elijah said, okay, this, I'm going to have some fun with this. You better cry louder. Maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he's sleeping and you've got to wake him up. You need to be his alarm clock. Maybe he's predisposed or he's on a long vacation. Just really irking them. Because he knew they can worship Baal. There is no such thing. There is no God called Baal. There's only one true God. And Israel had forsaken that one God. So look at verse 7. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. The stock has no bud. It shall never produce meal. If it should produce, aliens would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Now they are among the Gentiles like a vessel in which there is no pleasure, for they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey alone by itself. Ephraim has hired lovers. Yes, though they have hired among the nations, now I will gather them, and they will sorrow a little because of the burden of the king of princes. Fourth charge against them briefly, foreign alliances. Instead of trusting God, they trusted Egypt. They trusted Assyria. And, you know, I think the meaning behind you sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind is, okay, you want to turn to pagan worship like you're doing? They were adding different altars and worshiping. You want to add to your menu pagan worship? Okay, I'll send you in the midst of pagan worshipers. If you love pagan worship so much, then I'll make the worst pagans of this world your bosses, your masters. I'll give you over to them. That's the indictment that God gives, the charge and the sentence. Verse 11, and we'll finish up. Because Ephraim has made many altars for sin, they have become for him altars for sinning. I have written for him great things of my law, but they were considered a strange thing. For the sacrifices of my offspring, they sacrifice flesh and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt or to bondage. For Israel has forgotten, literally neglected his maker. And has built temples. Judah has multiplied fortified cities. But I will send fire upon his cities. And it shall devour his palaces. There was a formalism in Israel. They they kept the feasts. They kept the celebrations. But they forgot the God they were celebrating. I don't have time. I'd love to get into verse 12. So next time we're together... I'll plug in verse 12 because it fits neatly with chapter 9. But just mull over it this week. I have written for him great things of my law, but they were considered a strange thing. And I'll show you next time why I think that verse in Hosea is so important for the church today. The privilege that we have today, the access that we have today to Bible software, Bible, truth via television, radio, etc. And yet, to consider that 
a distant, strange thing, to be not familiar with the things of God when we have so many opportunities. We'll look more at that next week and tie it into chapter 9, but let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's a sobering thing to sit in a courtroom where you are the judge and Hosea, the prosecuting attorney, brings these charges against your people. We're so thankful that we live in the covenant of grace under the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We're so thankful for the new covenant and the word if being removed. Whereas in the Old Testament, God, you said you'd bless people if they obeyed you. And in the new covenant, it's since people believe in Christ. Because of Jesus, we're your children. You've taken the if out. You put the since in. We're so thankful for our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Truly, it's something to celebrate. Lord, we live in a culture that is very reminiscent of ancient Israel. A country and a culture that not only tolerates evil, but promotes it and celebrates it. And sees tolerance of even the most vile kinds of behavior as something that is a pro rather than a con. And so, Lord, we hearken back to that psalm. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And the answer is clear, Father, and that is not have our foundation in any government, in any institution, in any human being, but solidly upon the unshakable rock of the true and living God. May we abide there. May we grow from that firm foundation that is never shaken. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.